0: Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Jacob Aronoff, a staff engineer at LightStep from ServiceNow joins us. Jacob joins us today from Boston in the United States. Jacob Aronoff, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me. This is incredibly exciting.
0: So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software?
1: The first one is care, right? Like, uh, I think the... You say hair? Hair. No, care. <laughs> care. well Software has at least one person who really cares about the thing that they work on. I think a lot of the projects that I see that maybe are abandoned or don't have like a great showing it's usually because the person who was like the main person who cared about that you know lost the energy to do so which happens for a lot of reasons you know it's not to discount that you know that that does not happen for good reason but any project that is ongoing well maintained is going to have at least one person that really cares about seeing it through i think The other thing that for most projects is going to remain true is that you have a community of people, a group of people who can really put some weight behind it and make sure that it stays sustainable. I think that a solo developer running their own open source project is an incredible feat. It's very difficult to do. And so having a group behind you is always going to be helpful. It increases that care factor of your your software. So, I'm looking for a project that I only to use in my code, or you know I'm going my business is going to depend on. It's very important that there's like a relatively active community of people that really care about the thing that they work on. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Those two are the easy ones. I think it's it's usually non-technical and I think that's that's pretty interesting. I don't often worry about the I mean performance yes is important, but you know, if a project is well maintained, has a fair amount of people using it, GitHub stars are not like a great indicator. I've seen projects that have like tens of thousands of GitHub stars, but Almost no one is using it. That's not one that I would necessarily go for as uh, a sign of its quality. Performance benchmarks are great, but they're also really hard to do correctly. And also, I don't usually like trust a open source project's own benchmarks if they're not publishing exactly how they're doing them. Sometimes people set them up so that they look better. There's not a standard for how, you know, the industry should do benchmarking. So it's not always the best thing to base it off of. I think as someone that maintains software, seeing that the contributors are active in responding to issues is really important. There are definitely, I've been doing a lot of JavaScript on the side recently, and you'll occasionally see these projects that have like huge, huge usages all across the ecosystem, but they haven't been touched in years. And the maintainer of it is is just completely gone. And does not respond to any of the issues, so I always look for like issues. That's also where you find a lot of performance stuff, like real performance characteristics. Someone will usually say, "Hey, you know, I found a memory problem, or you know, performance problem X, Y, and Z." Uh, at that point, if there's a good community behind it and a good maintainer that really cares about it, they're going to want to look into that, and, like figure out why is this happening, right? <laughs> So yeah, I think it's really all on the non-technical stuff for a technical projects.
0: Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, definitely. The um, you're kind of okay. So you, you didn't say hair, so I just wanted to clarify that <laughs> for those that might still be confused. But care—that's an interesting kind of way to think about it. One of the things that I've always maybe I have kind of conflicting thoughts running in my head around open source, relying on say some. I don't know, maybe thinking about different types of open source projects, but let's say you're using something as like a dependency in your software project that you're working on behind, you know, for the organization you work for or whatever. And you're referencing some external library that was developed by someone. There's this interesting thing where like, does it accomplish what I need it to do? and how feature complete is it already versus what I think it may need in the future. And this is interesting, Like if the project kind of satisfies enough of what I think I need right now to accomplish my current task, like I'm gonna add this sort of feature and this seems to give me 80% of what I need and I can add a couple of things within my own application to kind of fill in the gaps there, that relevancy of like, well, nobody's worked on any open issues or they haven't released a new patch or any versions in like six months or a year or two. But I still get what I need for now. It's essentially, I've seen developers sometimes, I, I wonder if they're, dismissing the project because like well nobody's actively participating in the project but then if you look at the issues like well are there bugs or is it just like hey i want to add some new functionality that may or may not be applicable to my needs and so it's always always an interesting thing when another part of me is like but i can also fork that project i can go add in new functionality or someone I've seen some projects where there'll be a lot of pull requests and see people have added things that they need for themselves to their own fork of it. I'm using forks because like say GitHub or something. So they're able to do what they need for it, but, but it hasn't necessarily made it, you know, it hasn't gotten merged into like the, the main project branch and by the original developer or what have you does it mean that that's not being taken care of or is it just like everybody's able to take advantage of the software but maybe they just like i don't feel like i need to add any other stuff right now because it's given me what i've done and i've given everybody kind of a starting point like how do you assess that up as you're weighing those options or to take on that opportunity take the scenario on well maybe the, op- the original maintainer is no longer doing a lot on it right now it doesn't mean they will not in the future but if they don't i'm willing to gamble that i could potentially just work on these changes myself in my own fork of the project so is. Kind of like the point of open source or always seeking out something that seems really active today because i would predict most projects eventually reach that point
1: i'm coming at this from a single perspective perspective that i come at this right now initially was like i'm an open source maintainer and if i as an open source maintainer i'm going to use another person's open source library i need to be sure that if i'm usually i'm doing that for a good reason right i'm not just going to add a dependency for no reason and so I want to be sure that if it's really something that my project is going to rely upon, I can rely on them as well to be active and make, especially around security fixes and like dependency updates. That's where this gets really important because then you have a massive company reach out to you and you say, oh, I noticed that, you know, dependency X has a CVE, you know, you have to update that. And I'm like, Well, there's, you know, I can't do that because the project is abandoned. Like that's not a great answer from me, when it comes to internal software, that definitely changes. And I think I was approaching it from that first angle. I think internal software it matters much more about yeah, does it accomplish the thing that I need? And that's where I definitely am more performance conscious as well. If it's going to be a smaller library, where I'm, I would probably run some like performance tests internally add some benchmarks um, with my own code to see what the before and after looks like. If I could hand roll it, then I would try and hand roll it. And if I'm like, if I do, I really want to maintain this, maybe not. <laughs> Back to this this thing about care, I had an interesting experience with this recently where I found a bug in another open source library for the group that I'm a part of OpenTelemetry and the bug was in an upstream dependency of this project and this upstream dependency had, you know, 10 stars on GitHub didn't look very active. And I opened an issue thinking, you know, maybe there's a chance that someone will will see this and get back to me. And the maintainer of it got back to me within less than a day. And I got a PR merged in like less than two days into this. You know, it was a small fix, but still like that type of care was something that I really felt the other side of. And it made me much more appreciative of very random developers out there who are doing these pretty core things that larger libraries do rely upon. So, you know, I guess all that to say, whether or not repo has a ton of issues or PRs to look at, it doesn't necessarily even equate to is this even active. So at that point, it's usually I think it's because it's not being used that much, or maybe the code is relatively straightforward. In this case it was the code is relatively straightforward, which then lets me, you know, spend some time to go through the code understand the purpose of it. Should I fork it? Should I just upstream it? That's a much easier decision at that point. But if it were something like Angular, I don't want to fork Angular. That's, that's a lot of work for me. <laughs> I'm not a front-end person by any means, so that sounds like it would be a little bit more trouble than it's worth.
0: I can appreciate that. And I think you make a good point around when you're evaluating some open-source project, you also need to kind of evaluate their dependencies, you're like that project's dependencies, and know that there's going to be this chain that goes off and you're like, well, I don't know that everybody that I talk to, at least when I'm like chatting with like say folks on my team, we're talking about dependencies and there might be concerns like, well, this one hasn't had a lot of activity in a while, but then it's like, well, are they, are they keeping up with their own security patches from things that are upstream or and I don't know that they usually take those couple extra steps to like look at those dependencies and see how those things are doing because those things could definitely change and then kind of cascade down downwards and then it's challenging, but yeah, I think that there's some good things for folks to think about and how well is the project being cared and maybe being a little skeptical or at least not thinking about GitHub stars as a great indicator of how much it's used or not. I do. That's one thing about open source projects where it's easy to find data about downloads and maybe to some degree, depending on the platform that, you're, you know, the how their dependency management stuff works, you can see, but downloads, but then there's also GitHub stars and other things like that, or how much activity is on the things or how many contributors have been on the project. Those are all like other little like signals that may or may not convey this holistic picture of the situation. But as someone that has a project with like a lot of stars on it, I'm, it's like an ego thing. I'm like, people like it, but are they using it all? I don't, I don't know. That's another, that's a, that's a completely different question. But, and then there's also downloads are a little bit of a skewed number too, because every time some Docker image loads things up, like they're downloading again, I'm like, it doesn't mean that... So it's kind of we might be downloading a lot of things erroneously as an industry, but that's a different topic.
1: Yeah, you have to look for the real. Think about anything that can't be faked, like human activity, right? You need some type sort of attestation the project you're looking at is not tricking you into thinking it is worth more than it is, right? Because there are some projects out there that will try and like trick you into thinking that they're super active. I remember, you know, maybe two years ago there were some huge crypto projects that would attempt to like hijack their GitHub stars to make it seem like they had these huge communities when reality was just like not very active at all um, and not very used at all. And then there are also people out there that will, this is actually maybe a good thing that this is still like semi-human activity, I guess, but there are some humans which I think have automated scripts that go around to every repository under GitHub and just opens up like maybe it, a PR or two at least for documentation fixes. I think that people started doing this when they realized that recruiters cared about your GitHub activity to see that it like had traffic, consistent traffic. And so what they would do is just open up these like one line documentation fixes, which is like for me, I appreciate a one line documentation fix. I think that it's easy for documentation to, you know, not look great. So I don't really you know, who am I to say that this person doesn't, I shouldn't merge this because this is just what they do. That's silly, but that's just another example of like, it's someone gaming another non-technical system,
0: right? I think I just saw someone, it was one of the uh, one of the original GitHub founders posting about that they had heard that there's actually people like paying for GitHub stars now. And like you could pay to get GitHub and it's like everything gets, you know, which is dis- disappointing. And like, of, of course that's that's a thing. I don't I don't know where to go with that part, but it's just, it's just a, it's a thing, you know? So it's like, I think you make a good point. And then inflating those numbers. So it's kind of like, it means something and it doesn't mean something. And hopefully GitHub is keeping a handle on the bots there, I guess. Cross your fingers there. One of the things I wanted to kind of touch on, and you know, you're kind of in the realm of open source related topics. How do you think about like the, do you use the metaphor technical debt very often in your day-to-day work or your open source work or something? How do you kind of define that right now? I feel
1: like I don't think about it as technical debt. Like that's not the term that I would use because usually what happens is there's like a feature that was developed years ago, whose purpose can no longer be justified. If that makes sense. It's like, I guess it is what tech debt is, but it's a little bit more because someone's using it and it's still active and and people care about it and want this feature. So it's not just, um, it's not really debt per se. It's more just, um, it does not make sense to expand the scope of what it does currently. And so usually, especially for, so, you know, I work within open telemetry, which has, I'd say, a pretty large mandate of like, we're going to try and make doing any telemetry operations in your environment, like very simple, straightforward and consistent. So that's a pretty large mandate. And usually what we think about is like, abstractions i would say that's how i think about it is it's like back then someone chose the right abstraction for the time but it is no longer the right abstraction because the scope has expanded more and more open telemetry started as a tracing only project but now it has support for metrics and logs and i think they're talking about profiles like something that worked solely for traces will not also necessarily work for metrics and at all costs, you want to avoid code duplication because you're trying to ship something that's going to be really efficient and you want to care a lot about performance and code use because if you have to repeat yourself a lot, people are just not going to use the code that you write. Any of that duplication can really frustrate users. So more and more we what we see are bigger scoped abstractions. And that's, I think, more how I frame what I think a lot of people would call tech debt is... It's just a, a new scope. The thing was previously well scoped, but it shouldn't be used to do the next thing. We should make a new thing that supersedes it and then deprecate the old thing because it's, not, it's just not the best way to do it anymore. Great example of this, but I don't know if it's gonna to be too in the weeds. So there's this uh, component that I work on called the target allocator, which, whose purpose is to evenly distribute targets in a Kubernetes cluster. Uh, Prometheus targets. So Prometheus works as a pull-based model. You have a bunch of IP addresses in a cluster. Prometheus has to get those IP addresses and then query an API endpoint on each of them to get metric data. We wrote this piece of code called the target allocator that gets those IP addresses, but rather than Prometheus scraping it, we have a collector scraping it. And we're able to tell the collector, hey, you only scrape these five targets and Collector B, you scrape these, my targets, and so forth. The benefit of this is that we can distribute the scrapes evenly among this uh, pool, which Prometheus is unable to do because it has other stuff that it's up to. But so the, the problem, though, is that I just said the word Prometheus a lot. And so what if someone wanted to do this for another type of target? Something like, I don't know, you wanted to pull log data from a set of pods, or you wanted to get profiles from a set of pods, or. You know, these are all different types of targets, but because we've only treated this as a Prometheus issue, and that's how this service was designed, was to get Prometheus data, don't really want to expand the scope of that because it's going to really complicate the code base. What would be better to do is make something that's generic, that allows you to gather, you know, any type of target, distribute it to any type of receiver. That's the OTel word for it. And that wasn't done just because it was not the scope of the problem. So I think that is like, that's definitely the next type of uh, scope expanding that my group will probably be doing in like a year, but there are other pressing matters.
0: (laughs) Hey folks, it's Robbie, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. Let me cut to the chase. We've got a new sponsor, AppSignal, and they're a game changer. Do you know how dealing with errors and performance issues is like playing whack-a-mole in a dark room? AppSignal is the spotlight you've been missing. They bundle up to six, that's right, six monitoring tools into one. I'm talking error tracking, performance monitoring, host metrics, uptime monitoring, custom metrics for your application, and logging. If you're like me, I'm skeptical of any tool that promises to do everything, yet AppSignal shines through all that. AppSignal currently supports Ruby, Elixir, Python, Node.js, and if you're giving a go at one of these JavaScript front-end frameworks, you can easily integrate it into your application, and there's new language support on the roadmap. With plans starting out at a modest $23 US a month, it's a pretty sweet deal. Toss in ISO 27001 certification, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance. AppSignal is going to keep your data secure. Take a moment to set a reminder on your phone, send yourself an email, add it to your to-do list, and check out AppSignal.com and snag your free trial today. Again, that's AppSignal.com. Tell them that your good friend Robbie from Maintainable sent you. Let's get back to our show. Yeah, I appreciate you kind of diving into that there, and you know, I don't know a ton about open telemetry, but just kind of like from like a high-level perspective, thinking about, you know, you're now in this situation where you want to think about different targets and receivers and things like that, and different tooling, able you to know, interchange things. Do you feel like projects should pre-plan for any combination of things or do you think it's actually more advantageous to like work off that uh, the initial model of maybe working at leaning you've said prometheus a bunch but was that actually to its ad- advantage that there was well we're only going to work with the things that we know we need to tackle for right now if we uh, where does that line between let's get something out the door versus let's optimize for any possible combination that we might need in the future if this gets widely adopted i feel like there's always this kind of tug and tug of war there around like how much how well can you do that early on where it's not premature optimization or something or architecture
1: yeah no it's, it's i mean it's a great question and it's something that i probably talk about and think about on a daily basis it's like how opinionated should i be in the solution that i write because sometimes what a user wants is to have every configuration option under the sun and you sort of end up making a programming language in yaml and that's terrible like, that's, not, that's usually not a good thing so I'd say for a project like ours where at the time this made a lot of sense it was the right decision like, I, i'm not I'm usually not one to um, regret yes but it's you know it's not worth criticizing past choices like that because every choice was made for a reason right I think for Prometheus the that ecosystem was very insular and they We're attempting something which was brilliant, which was to have a full metrics ecosystem and for that to work really well with all of these different things. And they accomplished it. They've done a great job. Um, Where things are changing now, and this is where I, I think and I hope the industry is kind of going, is for people to centralize on best practices and sort of foundational concepts as open standards, if that makes sense, like less and less should we have proprietary standards or each vendor has its own way of doing a thing. Whereas it'd be much better for everybody to sort of come together and say, this is the way that we're going to do stuff. The problem with Prometheus was that it was only set up for metrics. Otel open telemetry realized that like, well, we've already done this for tracing. We've centralized these other two standards into one. It's, it's like attempting the opposite of that classic XKCD comic. It's like, we have these 13 standards and they all have these problems. Let's, you know, make a new standard that supersedes them. And, you know, congratulations, you have 14 standards. It's like attempting to do the opposite of that. And that's something that I can get behind because as someone that's worked in like all of these standards for, for years, it's really frustrating to have to go from one to another constantly. And you're just reinventing the wheel always. I think for backend. I feel like I see this less like, you know, Spring in Java has been around for a while. There are a few other things that you can choose, but it's kind of like one of the de facto ways of doing stuff. Ruby has Rails, Elixir has Phoenix. Like, there are all of these really de facto ways of doing things. It's not to say you shouldn't attempt something new and better, it's to say that it's really useful when there's a standardization of how to do a thing. And why can't we have that for telemetry if we have that for so many other things in the ecosystem? The analogy that I use is when you're driving a car, you know, you don't have to learn how to drive a Volvo or a Saab or, you know, a Ford. You learn how to drive, you know, automatic or manual. Those are like your two options. And if you know how to drive automatic or manual, you can drive any automatic or manual car. It doesn't make sense to relearn how to drive every single time. That, that's just wasted time and wasted effort.
0: I hadn't heard that one before. I like that. Driving a vehicle and we don't have to like, well, there's like maybe some special secret sauce that those cars have or they, certain things that they're putting an emphasis on that resonates with what you're valuing in a in a vehicle if you were to purchase one or rent one or whatever you're doing with a vehicle, stealing one, you know, what what have you. But you kind of like know how to jump in and out of different vehicles and... I'd be so curious to learn more about how they standardize that kind of stuff early on. It'd be an interesting story. I'm curious, like, how because like we said that this was going to be the pattern that we're going to set up in all the vehicles. Yeah, and, and how regulated
1: is it? Like, if someone wants to do a new thing, can they? I mean, Tesla attempted this with their steering wheel. I remember reading about this. I, I love that. That exact question that you just asked is, like, something that fascinates me. And Tesla made this steering wheel that, like, doesn't go up all the way, so it's, like, this and it doesn't have like a full round. And it's like, that must be because it wasn't regulated where you required a car to have that. And it was just convention. That everybody adhered to. So, like that's that's a very interesting thing to me. That it was all just convention, and every car was like, "Yes, this is what we're going to do." I mean, I don't know the actual the legal precedents for any of that. And I sure do want to know the answer.
0: <laughs> if anyone listening knows or can share some wiki links for us, that'd be awesome. I'm not really curious about this. All right, so back to software. You work on a lot of you know open source projects and things like that. How do you when you're part of these? projects, how do you think about, like you, even you were just talking about, maybe that'd be a thing you'd work on over the next year. How are you organizing, pitching those types of like evolutions of the project? Um, how do you, what are ways that you're kind of as a project or like group of members, maintainers, organizing that work and then kind of planning that kind of long-term?
1: I really like the, for one, talking about care for open source projects. The group that I work with has a lot of people that really care about What we do and the project that we work on, both for our repository, but also like OpenTelemetry as a whole, there are a lot of people that really do care about seeing things improve. That's sort of a really good base to work off of is that everybody has sort of this common goal in mind of everything. Like we should make this easier for people. The way that our SIG works in particular is like any SIG in OpenTelemetry and most SIGs, uh, sorry, SIG special interest group. Uh, You'll also hear like working groups sometimes. But so the way that our group works is we have weekly, bi-weekly SIG meetings where anybody can come and propose some thing that they want to do with the product. For us, usually it's one of the maintainers or approvers who are like the most active people in the project who see some user pain a lot of us work for a vendor and then talk to some customer that has problem x so sometimes it's about solving the immediate problem problem x and sometimes it's about proposing what would solve that class of problems right we talk about building the right abstraction so uh, a few months ago i came to the group and i said H- here's a problem that i know exists which is around configuration configurations of pain for x y and z what if we let vendors do that remotely do remote configuration to which you know i wrote designs and papers and then brought them to the group and then we discussed it and then enough people said yeah like this sounds good we'd be happy to approve this you know we've just started working on it i set up the issues i set up the yeah i set up the issues did some prs and then got a few folks from the community who were interested in working on it to help out as well which is awesome and it was great to see someone to reach out to me like hey i love what you're doing would love to come and help out, which was unexpected and a great surprise because <laughs> I thought it was very niche and I thought it was just going to be me. So it was, <laughs> that was kind of a fun one. But regardless, that that's the way that our group works. They're much larger groups like those at Kafka or Kubernetes or Elasticsearch, and they have a much longer process to do this type of thing where they have like like public roadmaps about things that they want to work on. You write different proposals, like these really long, detailed proposals about the specific changes that you want to make. And then those all require, you know, a certain amount. There's a lot of bureaucracy around it. And for good reason, right? Like these are projects that are really foundational to a lot of companies. So you want to be sure that whatever you do is not going to, you know, break the core user experience. For us, you know, we are a smaller group. Um, We sort of adhere to the fact that we don't want to break users. And we call out in our change log if we do. Uh, for some reason, like if we have to, but that's infrequent. I think if if we were a much larger project, we'd be closer to what the main group does, which is have like the open telemetry group versus the specification has like a really long, important process to get large changes approved. So it totally depends
0: on the group. I'll, I'll include some links to some of those projects as well in the show notes for people and see if I can track down even. I'm curious about some of those uh you mentioned that like Kafka or Elasticsearch might have longer bureaucratic process and in, like, looking into that stuff, cause I'm curious that, just to read some of that material. On the topic of open source projects, we talked a little bit about when you're assessing potential projects you might want to take advantage of and use leverage for your project, whether that be some personal project hobby thing or something you're doing for the company that you're potentially employed by for those listening that might have never participated or contributed to any open source projects historically, but they're maybe curious about it. First, maybe can you tell us a little bit like what prompted you to start working on open source projects? And then do you recall what the first open source project that you had code accepted and merged into?
1: I can think about that, but I'm gonna answer the question and I'll keep that in the back of my head. I was at i I've been doing DevOps SRE stuff for some time. Um, my career. And I had worked for Datadog in the past and really enjoyed that experience. It was a really great time getting to build the tool and use the tool. fooding, you know, very, very, very big. Um, I don't think they invented the term, but it, it worked out well with the name of the company. <laughs> so for me, I wanted to go back to that, but I really wanted to build the tools that I was using so when I was looking for a new job, that was the thing that I really cared about was, am I going to get a chance to build in the open the things that I, in my current role, would use on a daily basis? A thing that I really enjoy about DevOps and SRE and you know internal tooling is that I love building for developers because people get very excited and um, they have very interesting critiques that, you know, when you're building like a SaaS product for like B2C, you would, not experience because people have very different needs there. But when someone is able to say, oh, it'd be great if we had this configuration available or it'd be great if this thing were more visible, stuff like that, like that, that's really exciting for me. But I wanted to do that, not just internally, I wanted to get the external feedback. And I also really like the mission of OpenTelemetry and, and the company where I work of like, we should be building a lot of this stuff to be vendor neutral because ultimately the car analogy is like, it should just be... A public good. You know, you shouldn't need to really care about where you're sending your data because the data is ultimately the same. I'm very into like, Kubernetes and that whole ecosystem. So that was something where I really got to leverage that experience to improve the Kubernetes story for open telemetry And that, that was like really exciting to me. As far as the first project that I ever had code accepted to, that's hard. I, mean, I used to do like Hacktoberfests in college. I'm sure that I got one in there. I don't know. I'd have to look that up. Some get up somewhere.
0: <laughs> we'll be back with our interview with Jacob in just a moment. Hi, it's me. Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the maintainable software podcast if you're finding these conversations valuable. Stop everything right now and go over to Apple Podcasts and write a review to help spread the word. Give us a rating. And if you're not sure what to write in the little comment box to say, Robbie's mildly entertaining. I enjoyed the conversation he had with Jacob Aronoff. You could say something like that. You can also say, I have nothing more to say. Five stars, one star, just be honest, but also, yeah, just do it. That'd be great. I love, I need the reviews. It'll help more people see it. Uh, it's just how the algorithm, uh, the algor, algo, algorithms work. Help my algorithm. Algorithm. Okay, let's get back to our interview. Jacob Aronoff. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's, that's always interesting how people find their way into with those first few projects, some people I've talked to and they're, you know, they're, they're nervous about it, like maybe a junior developer. And they're like, well, who am I to participate? Or I think I, they don't even feel confident enough to like, I'm a great coder yet, let alone, how can I possibly help out? And so it's always easy enough to be like, well, go help improve the documentation or things like that. But I feel like sometimes just like playing with the tools and playing, you know, testing and discovering bugs or something, or not always assuming that the project is it's not, sometimes I've I've worked with uh, some developers where we might be pairing on a bug and there's maybe a Ruby dependency that the project's using. They're hitting some weird bug for some reason. And then we're like, they're trying to think like, it's obviously my code because the dependency wouldn't possibly be buggy. And then we go like open up the, the third-party library and we're like, let's add some logging in here and like see what's going on. And you're like, no, there's actually a problem in that system. Like, oh, I'm like, yeah, that really you know famous person in the Ruby community wrote that they have bugs too. It's okay. It's a, we can make these changes. It's okay. So do you have any advice for the listeners on how they might go about finding projects or like where to get started in that kind of world?
1: I mean, I think the easiest is find a project that you use frequently enough that you find interesting. You want to know how it, you know, how it ticks, how it works, and just take a look at it. Read through the code as you read through any other repository where you are. See if there's something that you always wished that existed or if there's even something you know documentation fixes are so important for open source i think that you know it's it's like common knowledge in for software developers that people don't love writing documentation you'd think and hope that for open source that would be a little bit different but sometimes it's really not i mean it's it's hard to prioritize it right when you have you know a dozen people talking about asking about a bug, different bugs that they're experiencing, you want to prioritize that because that's the immediate pain. But ultimately, it's the documentation that if you don't have great docs, that's what's going to drive people away from your project, or at least you know they're not going to get through the front door of, of using it. So if you're worried about getting like code accepted, documentation is a really good way to get started. Bug fixes, yes; testing, yes, but. Sometimes that can be a little bit harder to find, especially for larger projects. It can be a little challenging to add test cases because I find that can be kind of an all or nothing thing. Some repositories are very strict with testing where they'll have like testing criteria for acceptance tests. Like you need to have a certain level of uh, testing added, like for code coverage, right? And then others just won't have any testing set up, in which case you're kind of out of luck because <laughs> you don't want to be the first person to implement a testing strategy. That can be another big lift if you're not familiar with it. So I'd say documentation great, new features great. I also think it's a really good strategy to just look at recent bugs like in issues and see if there are any that say that are tagged with like good first issue. I try to do that for my repository when I can. Just say, you know, this is a great first issue. What I would do if I if I'm not if I weren't already like an active contributor, I would find something with that tag. I would say, I think I can take this on. Would anyone want to pair with me and just like help me, you know, just answer a few basic questions. I'd say like the, the hardest thing, I mean, this is really for any software project, but the hardest thing can be running locally. If there isn't a clear local dev setup for the open source project, which again, sometimes there isn't. It also can be kind of weird to, if you're working on like, you know, a uh, package for Ruby, if you're not familiar with like Ruby package development, it might be a little bit hard to understand what the testing harness looks like. So, pairing with someone could be like is a great strategy. It's also great for me as someone who's like an open source maintainer. I love to pair up people, especially for this project, because the more people that are able to contribute, that's better for everybody. So, like an hour of my time spent could save me hundreds of hours in the future. So, I'm, I'm always happy to
0: do it. That's great. Kind of leads into my only other questions I was going to have is like you mentioned tagging, maybe issues that might be good for first time or first issues for people. What other sorts of ways have you found that projects have been successful in recruiting more contributors or... I say that as someone that has a project that has a few people contributing to it. A lot of people contribute to it, but I have a few people that I have the time to kind of act as like co-maintainers of the project. But it's always this interesting thing, well, how do we recruit more people and feel confident to bring them in or trust these people to come in and have access to the main branch that's gonna get deployed to everybody's computer?
1: I think for us we have open telemetry has standards for access and how that works. So there's a clear process for us, which is you go from member to contributor, to triager, approver, maintainer, and then emeritus. Like you know, you're not doing that role anymore, but you still maybe have some access. So I think like that is a great way to get to, like that's a good flow for us because you can start just contributing. You know, maybe a maintainer or an approver will say, "I need some help here. Anyone want to take this on?" As far as recruiting people goes, I have gotten more comfortable doing two things: asking for help. I'm saying, "I would love it if someone else could." take this on, especially when someone brings a bug that I know is not going to take that long, but I just don't have time to fix. I'll say, hey, this is not going to take that long to fix. I can walk you through the fix. But you know, if, if it gets you most of the way there and you can take it from there, that would be super helpful to me. So I've been saying that more and more just because it's, it's so important to ask for help. <laughs> then the other one is you can do various asks in whatever on the socials you have, whether it's Slack or Twitter, Blue Sky, all of the social networks that exist now (laughs) putting out an ask it's gonna have a low success rate like any marketing right any marketing i think the click rate is usually like one percent or something but maybe if it's this might be a little bit self-serving not for me but like for someone who's listening and, and wants to contribute if you're like maybe stuck between jobs after all of the like terrible layoffs of the past year something that is helpful is to contribute to an open source project and start, you know, doing something, finding the project that really excites you contribute when you can. It doesn't have to be all the time. doesn't even have to be more than once, but just like contributing when you can is honestly like a great thing to do to keep your skills up. It's a good thing to have on your resume. Again, that's the self-serving part, but it is like very helpful to contribute back and just keep that skill available. Everybody will be appreciative. If your maintainer who doesn't appreciate someone else's contribution, I mean, that's, that's hard. I don't know. I I just don't, I can't even imagine,
0: (laughs) you know? Yeah. I don't say thank you enough, nearly enough as I should, but I I do try to be very mindful about that. And Especially recognizing first-time contributors or people that had their code merged for the first time, trying to call that out—that's important things to try to do. Um, keep on top of that. There are some tools out there for those listening as well. There's some actually some useful tools that you can kind of tap into that can help you with those things. On open source side, for example, there's a tool called Orbit that will track things like you might check it out, and it'll you can connect it to your GitHub projects and stuff like that, and it'll keep like a basically show your activity of your community, and when it'll like highlight when people first time tell you who's forking the project, who's starring it it'll also tell you when someone got their code merged and by who kind of a nice little thing for our projects to consider we they were one of our clients a couple years ago the agency that i run but yeah they were happy to like give omic oh shell some some free access for our open source projects yeah should check it out it also was really nice it, it coupled with uh, twitter as well until x changed their uh, api rules so that that's no longer thing but it would also match up people tweeting about the project, oh, my Z shell, my project, and, like, what's happening on GitHub and stuff like that, and we also sell stickers and t-shirts, and so I could also connect the dots there as well and show, like, this kind of ecosystem of who's using the project to some degree, considering it's an open source project, and GitHub, GitHub doesn't have any sort of way to track, like, unique clones of your project or whatever, but...
1: Also, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank you personally for, like, all of the work that you've done in the open source world, because... Yours was the first open source project that I like read through a lot of the code of, and really started like hacking on and building on top of when I first got into software engineering. And I still have the theme that I wrote based on your like Robbie Russell theme for for my show that I see every day, and I made it like almost ten years ago. <laughs>
0: Hey, 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 it's me, Robbie, again. Have you subscribed to the Maintainable Software Podcast newsletter yet? Maybe? If not, head over to maintainable.fm. You can probably find the link in the show notes and click on newsletter and fill out the form. You're gonna get an email from me when there's a new episode that kind of gives you a little bit more background and some thoughts I had about the episode. And then every once in a while, you're gonna get an email from me that talks about other episodes that I've had in the past that you may or may not have already heard and combine some thoughts on like, here's a couple of episodes on testing or on documentation and might help you have some other interesting content to listen to. So if you're enjoying Maintainable, subscribe to the newsletter. Again, let's get back to the interview with Jacob Aronoff. That's wonderful. Uh we're I think it's just about to celebrate so maybe in the next week or two of this recording where uh, it's the fourteenth anniversary of creating the project. So I actually, earlier today had our, like our, we do like a monthly maintainer meeting, uh, with a couple of people that live in Europe with me and sync up on our projects and stuff. But we do have these conversations, like how do we get more maintainers in here? Because we're all been busy this summer. So activity's kind of gone down and what we can contribute to, but it's also interestingly enough, the, I always felt like it was feature complete the day I I released it and everything since then has been like add-ons. It didn't have themes. It didn't have plugins. None of that stuff existed the first time I released the project those are all just contributions from the community of developers. And so thank you being an active user and your participation. And I appreciate the, uh, the kudos there as well. Um, try not embrace the, uh, try not to be overly humble when someone appreciates, it. but I got my own my t-shirt on today. Maybe I can get, get one sent to you as well. Before we kind of wrap up, there was one topic that I wanted to ask you about, you know, ahead of our conversation, you mentioned that everything would be so much easier if pure functional programming was the default. Could you expand on this for us?
1: Yeah, I went to, college in Boston at at Northeastern University, and Northeastern's first year program is all taught in Racket, which is like a Lisp dialect, and it made me truly appreciate how much thought goes into programming language development, and like general software development thoughts. It was really, I really loved the program. (laughs) It was a lot of fun, but I think what it showed me is that like writing testable code is abstract to any language it doesn't matter if your language is functional i don't really want everybody to like learn racket or list like that's that's futile but for someone to learn the reasons why those languages made the choices they did i think is like really important a lot of the things that we you know attribute to like good practice and object-oriented design is really attributed to functional programming which is you know You want to be very clear with your signatures. You want to design with dependency injection because you can't have side effects. That's just a thing that's impossible. And so when I'm writing software now, even though I write mostly in Go, I keep that in mind because it makes my life so much easier. Writing tests is trivial when you're able to do dependency injection. It also is much easier when you don't have side effects and you don't have to mock a million classes and do some really terrible reflection to make your stuff work. It means that I can run tests as though I had a Kubernetes environment without having a Kubernetes environment. Like, that's that's pretty incredible. None of that would really be possible if people, you know, wasn't, if someone wasn't really thinking about this at the foundation. Um, and so I'm, all I want is for more software to be like that, just more pure functional stuff where you don't, it's just... I don't know. Easier to reason about for me. I'm not saying everybody should write Rust, though, and not everybody should write like Haskell or OCaml or whatever. Like, don't go, you know, to your company and say, "I need to change our production language because Jacob said so." No, <laughs> just uh, incrementally. You know, just think about how you can make your code more testable and, and avoid those side effects.
0: I'd be curious to hear from the audience and kind of their perspective on that as well. So definitely feel free to reply to us on the socials and we can dive, dive in. If you want to debate Jacob, you can just send him an email. I will put his personal email address in the show notes so you can do that. No, kidding. Um, but definitely, yeah, you know, that's interesting. A um, couple of quick last questions for you as we're wrapping up. Unrelated to software development or programming, is there a non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to peers from time to time?
1: I did just read a great book, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, Scorsese's making a movie of it. Um, and it was a really fantastic read, but that's just like off the top of my head. I think, what do I find myself recommending a lot? I don't know, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I feel like I'm very, I'm very uh, you know, classic uh, nerd slash child of the nineties. <laughs> but um, that's one of my favorite books and um, I definitely recommended that a lot. <laughs> Uh Killers of the Flower Moon. Um it's it's a very, very good read. It's a nonfiction book, but it reads like a thriller novel. Um and it's it's
0: fantastic. All right. I will look that up and include show note, those links to those books in the show notes for everybody. And is there a place online that people could find your thoughts and ruminations or how can they kind of follow along? Is that your GitHub profile or
1: GitHub probably. Um uh, I mean I also I have a blog that I put I always say i'm gonna post more this year and then i don't <laughs> but i don't know i'm not really active on a lot of socials maybe like i'm on blue sky now with my domain which is jaranoff.com um that's probably the best place to find me now i don't really i'm not really on twitter at all anymore um at least i try not to be um, <laughs> and Yeah, it's probably best. My website is where you can find some thoughts on things when I do have thoughts on things and tutorials and stuff.
0: I'll include links to those in the show notes. And then you'll at least have one thing to blog about is this you can share this episode on your blog. Um, Yeah, yeah. I definitely will. (laughs) At least get that going for you. Well, thank you so much for stopping to talk shop with us, Jacob. It's been such a delight having you on Maintainable.
1: Thank you so much for having me.